The Brothers Niebuhr. Let's get it going. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Road Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the known universe that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Thank you all, listeners, for joining us today. Just a reminder to our audience of a few interviews we have coming up this spring on the political side of town. We got uh, foreign policy expert Sean Casey. Coming up soon, we have white nationalism and extremism expert uh, Josephine Grafe, also coming up later in the spring. And on the theology and ethics side of town, we have an interview with Heal and Gaston coming up uh, that will also be on the Niebuhr brothers, interestingly. I think she has some like new correspondences between them that she's going to be unveiling soon. Also this summer, of course, Stanley Hauerwas, Gary Dorian uh, debate, and then around Independence Day, we'll have Andrew Basevich. Maximum Niebuhr. But today we have a very special guest, someone who has been very patient with us as we had to cancel this this interview a couple weeks ago because I got COVID. But uh, this is someone we've been greatly looking forward to talking to. In fact, back when I was doing my PhD and all I wanted to do was find podcasts on Niebuhr, just, you know, uh, just to like kill some uh, drive time and multitask and try to fill my head with as much Niebuhr as possible. And I couldn't hardly find any but any of them. But one of the best episodes I could find was one where this fellow we're about to interview was on Homebrewed Christianity with Trip Fuller. And it was just a fantastic interview. They started off talking about the book that we'll be discussing today, but they ended up getting really deep into Niebuhr. We're talking human nature, nature and destiny type of stuff, uh, nature and destiny of man type of stuff. And it's hard to find good podcast content on that subject, so um, so you should all look that up. But the but that person I was listening to in that interview, and the person we have the pleasure of interviewing today, is Dr. Scott Paith. Scott has been teaching at DePaul University for almost 20 years, 19 years. Um, he has authored or edited at least eight books, uh, along with many articles. He's the co-editor of the Journal of Society of Christian Ethics. And to top it off, Scott is a fellow Congregationalist. Okay, He is an ordained minister in the UCC. Um, Scott, so great to have you with us. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to this, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Now, for our listeners, we've all read Scott's book on the Niebuhr Brothers. It's called the Niebuhr brothers for armchair theologians. And in response, we've all come up with some questions for Scott. So I'll get us started and then Zach and then Aaron and around we'll go for about an hour and then we'll close it all out. So, uh, so Scott, um, thanks again. I really thought that this was an interesting study right off the bat, how you framed it in the int introduction, you say, quote, one of the great challenges of this project was in trying to reflect how their different points of view arose naturally from their common history. I thought this is this is such an interesting beginning to this. Um, this isn't like a standard analysis where you're comparing a single figure against a backdrop of theology kind of acting as a control, but you have two moving targets here who are moving away from each other. 
but from the same background. It kind of reminds me of those psychological studies um, where they where they study twins. You know, you kind of use one as a control for the other a little bit, but both targets are moving. So maybe sum up for us, Scott, if you can. What did you take from this comparative analysis that maybe you can't find in other biographies on on Reinhold or Richard? So one of the interesting things when you begin to get into the subject matter is just how little work there is out there comparing the two of them. Um, there really isn't a kind of a common common text that puts the two of them into conversation with one another. Uh, and so when you begin to kind of go and explore them as individuals, what you see is that they are both deeply rooted in that sort of evangelical and reformed history from which they come. The, and the 19th century liberal context um, that was really kind of motivating their father. And yet the way in which they took that thought and developed it while still remaining in the same solar system became kind of very different planets from one another. Um, and the best way that I can kind of conceive of this is that it's just really down to their personalities you know, that they were in in a very real sense, just very different people. Um, and and so so it really is one of these cases where the biography does tell the story about sort of how their intellectual development takes place. And for me, the central metaphor for that is that when they were children and they each had to pick a musical instrument, Reinhold chose the trombone. And Richard chose the flute. Love that right? so much. And yeah. just the fact that 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 to me reflects very much the, at the heart of their personality. That you know, Reinhold was a very brassy guy, right? <laughs> you know, and he was very extroverted, and so he really was happy to broadcast his ideas out to a wide audience in a loud and um, you know, kind of declarative way. You know, whereas I think Richard was a more subtle voice and, uh, you know, much more interested in, you know, bringing out the nuances, you know, and so much more, you know, a theological flute player to uh, Reinhold's trombonist. And Richard took up more after his mother. You say mm -hmm. uh, Reinhold took more after his father. Richard was more shy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, and, and Reinhold was um, known for his preaching and, you know, really really firm and strong voice from the pulpit. And yeah, I thought you you drew that out really well. Well, first, I was just going to add to what you're saying. What's really interesting is I was, this is just kind of a, a bit of a side note, but <clears throat> I've been having, I'm preparing for ordination and my my MDiv isn't strong enough for the Presbyterian church. So they, they're making me do all this extra reading. And so I, I'm reading Reformed Theology in America. I, I just finished Reformed Theology in America, a history of uh, its modern development by, um, David Wells. And it, so he does it based on schools, schools of thought. And it's really interesting because, you know, there's the Southern school, there's the, um, shows how much I retain. I remember the fourth one though, because the fourth one was, uh, he put it in the category of New York Orthodox and it was to represent that entire category. It was the Niebuhr brothers. He, he put them both, both in there and they were the representative because he would do two representatives per school. And I thought it was really interesting that, that he he saw them as the representatives of that school entirely. You know what I mean? Like they were going to be. The... And yet they're still so different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's yeah. That just tells you probably what neo-orthodoxy is. I mean, yeah. 
Well, well I thought, I, I was, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say I thought it was really neat because I, I think a lot of times their the their their influence in the reformed church is kind of underestimated, I think. Um, I think oftentimes some maybe because Niebuhr was could be a little out there, you know, theologically. I think maybe that people are a little uh, afraid of him, a little, you know, like, uh, do we want to include him? You know, um, yeah. Anyways, I just thought that was interesting. And you mean by when? So this is called "Love Thy Neighbor." This podcast is, but when we say Niebuhr on accident during this, we typically mean Reinhold. Um, yeah. So that's like kind of our default, just so we're all aware that's who you're talking about. So yeah. But one of the questions I always ask that I'm always curious of is like I'm reading this, and you know. We, I, I guess we've shared, uh, Cliff and I have shared how we kind of ended up doing this together. We, we ended up doing it because uh, I, I I recommended some books to him on, on Twitter and they were, um, they were Niebuhr books. And then I found, and then I realized I had followed his account because he has a PhD in Niebuhr studies. And I was like, oh, dang, you know, um, what what's your background? Like, why, why did you end up on these guys? That, that's the question I always want to ask is, why 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 the Niebuhr brothers what what brought you down this road i think that if you had asked me when i was working on my doctorate where i would like my scholarship to go i would not have pointed to the Niebuhr brothers uh, i was working um, i did my dissertation on jürgen moltmann um and and i love moltmann and i still kind of consider myself a moltmann guy at least as much as i'm a Niebuhr guy um and they make for a very interesting particularly with Reine, uh, they make for a very interesting kind of give and take theologically um because Niebuhr's theology of uh Niebuhr's, moltmann's theology of hope uh, you know, is a really interesting contrast case to the way Niebuhr's, you know, moderate pessimism with regard to to human nature uh, comes through in his work. Um, but it's interesting to note that, you know, when Moltmann was a prisoner of war in World War II, uh, the first book that he was given to read in theology when he was in prisoner of war camp uh, was Moral Man and Immoral Society. Yeah. Wow. Ryan Holy Hitler. cow. So he would, that was sort of his introduction to uh, to theology was reading Niebuhr. So so there's, there's obviously an affinity there. Mm -hmm. But I would actually put it down to um, having studied with Max Stackhouse at Princeton um, because Max was very much a Niburian, um in certain aspects because Max was very eclectic. So he would draw on a lot of different resources. But I recall the way that it really began was that I was emailing him back and forth while I was working on my dissertation. And I said to him in one email, I said, I noticed that in at the American Academy of Religion, they've got a Bonhoeffer Society. And they've got a Tillich Society, and they've got a, you know a Bart Society, and they've got all of these different you know Schleiermacher section, all this stuff. But there's nothing dedicated to the Niebuhrs. You know why is that? And his his email back to me was I think it was just one sentence, which is well we should start one. Um, and so that was sort of that became the impetus for the creation of the Niebuhr Society nice. uh, at the American Academy of Religion. And so it was me, Max, Peter Paris, Kevin Carnahan, Ron Stone, um, um, uh, Robin Lovin, uh, a few other people, um, you know, really who were 
who were aficionados of the Niebuhr brothers who thought, well, we should really do what we can to sort of increase the profile of the Niebuhrs at the AAR. And as it happened, that was very timely because it was right around the time that the Niebuhr revival was beginning to really hit in a big way, you know, kind of that kind of uh, mid-aughts um, reaction to the Bush administration and the Iraq war. And a lot of people saying, you know, if we had just read more Niebuhr, we wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so it was in that context then that I just began doing more research and writing on Reinhold in particular, it's always Reinhold in particular, right? I mean, unless you sort of start with Richard, Reinhold tends to be the person that sort of, you know, grabs the trombone. Gravity. Yeah. It's the trombone player, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so and then you kind of come by come by Richard in a in a more roundabout way. Um, and so 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 that's what kind of got me writing and researching on them. And I realized that they really both of them together really did offer uh, an important critique of this kind of religious and political situation in which we in which we found ourselves at that point and so then i've just kind of kept going from there well i have basically the same experience i was doing my i was at union i was mostly interested in bart and then all this stuff like the schlesinger article and the and obama's um interview yeah. with brooks that's, like that's, that's where I started. I was like, okay, I got to do this, and then that's when I started researching Niebuhr. So yeah, well, that was a huge time. It, yeah, it's funny. I, I think we're still seeing. Uh, I I think, gosh, I might be speaking out of my butt here, but um, I I think we haven't seen the end of it because I think that a lot of scholars were inspired during that revival who were up and coming, um, who are just now being established. So I yeah. Well, I think that was good. You know, I was I was at I was at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in, wow. in historical theology in 2011 or no in 2012 or something like that. So this is just around the time your your book came out. And I know I'm not supposed to take two questions, but my question just flows right naturally out of this. Do it, man. And that is what what is? Can you tell us more about this Niebuhr revival? Because, um, um. I mean that that is right when I started reading Niebuhr was right 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 about then right about when your book came out actually right it was 2011 if I recall yeah um my my second my second question was just exactly that it was you know I was in high school technically when your book was first published so I I, I don't have as much familiarity you know with all these events that were taking place I mean I, I had a little bit of a, a grasp but he tells more about like this this time period this this Niebuhr revival um in what role you think the election of uh, Barack Obama played? Because it seems like he has kind of an entourage of of Niebuhr, uh, of Niebuhr followers that, that follow him. You know what I mean? It's like we have uh, Sean Casey's coming on uh, next week and he's a big Niebuhr guy and he was a part of that administration technically. Um, and it I, seems like that's kind of a common connection. And I, and I wonder when, because I've heard many people talk about that Niebuhr revival kind of in an informal way, but I wonder if it's it will gain some historical credibility as a distinct period. Yeah, well, I mean, it really was an interesting time to be studying Niebuhr because, <clears throat> so to set, set a little bit of context uh, for, for anybody who may have all been young at that time, you know, so September 11, 2001 happens and it sort of produces uh, an enormous sort of reaction 
kind of at every level of society. That, that's probably an understatement, right? And of course, it precipitates the war in Afghanistan, um, and then and then and then shortly thereafter, the war in Iraq. And at the same time, that sort of on the political level, you had you know people mobilizing to you know get the country in a war footing, um, and making a very strong case that the United States had this kind of global mission to bring democracy to 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 all of these places where despotism and tyranny uh were reigning you know and Iraq was sort of kind of like you know the first domino that we saw was going to fall in fact the echoes of 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 uh cold war domino theory really do resonate here mm-hmm. uh and it's worth remembering that a lot of the like Hubert Humphrey was a big Niburian in the 1960s and you know and mm-hmm. for him you know you see a lot of these same things echoing but in the early 2000s on the theological front, you had people like Jean Betke Elstein writing in her book, Just War on Terror, um, that you could use Reinhold Niebuhr and Dietrich Bonhoeffer to justify the war on terror. Hmm. Huh. And, Interesting. and, you know, that was sort of, for me, kind wow. of the first place where I saw Niebuhr specifically invoked with respect to kind of the post 9-11. What, what year was that? Do you remember? What year did that book come out? Yeah. Was that early 2000s or was that 90s? It was early 2000s. So it was okay. a post 9-11 book. Um, and it was, so I would say 2002, maybe, because she, I think she turned it around pretty fast. Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of the people in the Project for New American Century, the neocons, they mm. were really, uh, I don't know, like Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld, a lot of those guys. Uh, I don't, I, that history's fuzzy to me too, like, because they're traditionally seen as liberal people who ended up becoming neoconservative and using Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, in that way. So I, I don't know, like there were many Niburian types in the Bush administration who would use Niebuhr in their neocon kind of lens. I don't know if you can speak more about that. Sure. Well, I mean, that's where that, so the neocons are a really weird sort of kind of uh, category of of intellectual and politician, right? Because as you say, their instincts are in a lot of ways very liberal. Right. They want to bring democracy to the to the world. They want to bring they have the sort of conception of freedom. And Wolfowitz was very much in that vein. Um, But 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 they also have this very well, this militaristic bent, you know, to not to put too fine a point on it, uh, in which they think that, you know, well, what you need in order to do this is you need to basically, you know, bring democracy to Iraq at the point of a gun. Right. And and. And I think that at the point at which I'm sort of kind of entering the narrative, so you have Elstein making the case in like 2002, 2003, that that Niebuhr would have supported the war on terror. Mm -hmm. And more horrifyingly, that Bonhoeffer would have supported the war on terror. Right. And it sort of reminds me of, you know, the um, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy who wrote that really terrible Bonhoeffer biography, um, Metaxas, Metaxas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, um, 
Metaxas writing that, you know, in 2016, Bonhoeffer would have supported Donald Trump, right? I mean, there's a certain category of person who's like, they just want to like drag Bonhoeffer into whatever terrible idea that they've, that, you know, that they're developing. Right. And, and Elstein was doing this with regard to the war on terror. Uh, I thought it was a complete betrayal, certainly of Bonhoeffer, um, but also of, of Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and it was a couple of years later that Andrew Bisevich, uh, came out with his well he ended he ultimately wrote a preface to the new um to the new edition of um, irony of american history irony of american history and and in that one he really kind of laid out his sort of kind of niburian kind of what i would sometimes call like a chastened liberal mm -hmm. um perspective uh, on these things, which is to say that all of these people who are using Niebuhr to justify this on the grounds largely of his World War II writings. Mm. We're ignoring the larger moral and theological context in which Niebuhr was making these claims, which is which is which is exactly what 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 gets laid out in books like Moral Man and Immoral Society and Irony of American History. It's like they didn't read those books. They just yeah. read like occasional essays that he was writing in World War II in which he was supporting the war, but they weren't understanding the, you know, the larger picture which is that for him it always comes down to the limitations of human capacity to do good uh, right and so we always have to yeah. engage in these these kind of large scale projects with humility and with a recognition of the fact that that we can't overcome evil in its sort of in its deepest dimensions because it's it's ingrained in our human nature and in our institutional life that that's really interesting because it sounds like well, what you're saying is that a lot of these um, politicians, uh, people in you know Bush's cabinet and stuff, uh, we're just ripping Nebrav as you know larger context of his the theological background, right? But it bring, makes me think of another question of what is the underlying motivation or what 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 is the sort of context in which these people are evaluating Niebuhr or using Niebuhr, are they really just trying to be like William James and just saying that power works and therefore we can just mm. introduce democracy in there? Or if if I could say something real quick. Yeah. So we just interviewed Mark Tooley last week. Okay. So all the guys at Providence, Tooley has, and Tooley's kind of in line with this type of reading of Niebuhr. And something that I noticed in interviewing him last week is they they kind of treat Niebuhr, you take like a single work of his and interpret everything else through that. And if anything kind of diverges from that, then you kind of don't see that as canonical or, or you, you see him as, he, oh, he would have revised that later. Or he would have changed the way he talked about that later or, you know, everything like there's this gravity at one certain point in Niebuhr's career mm. that they interpret everything else, you know, through. So, yeah, well, I mean, let me see if I can kind of tackle both of those, those, those questions, because in the Bush administration, they viewed the fundamental human problem, if I can frame it like this, as people, when you allow them to be free, will choose democracy and human rights. Um, and the only reason why they don't make that choice is because they're deprived of the opportunity. So if we can go in and get the bad guys out of power and allow the good guys to to come in, then they will create democratic and and 
small L liberal institutions that will respect capitalism and human rights and um, and ensure um, you know democratic governance. Uh, and that was sort of so so Iraq to a lesser extent Afghanistan, but really Iraq was the sort of testing ground for that theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is very much the sort of neocon Paul Wolfowitz mm-hmm. form of neocon project, right? And you can see where it goes back to the the Cold War ideology that really kind of birthed neoconservatism mm-hmm. in the first place, which is which is the problem is communism. And if we can get rid of communism, then democracy, capitalism, human rights are just going to kind of flow in and take care of themselves, which is why we were willing you know, to support petty dictators in Central America as long as they were anti-communist, right? Mm-hmm. So something similar is happening with respect to 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 the Iraq war in that they were coming in, they were saying, well, it's tyranny broadly construed. That's the problem. And we get rid of these tyrants and then the democratic and capitalist and freedom wave will come. Um, And so that, and you know, you can cherry pick aspects of Niebuhr to make that case again, largely from his, his writing around world war two, but you, but to do that, you got to cherry pick. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really does cut against the grain of his his wider theology, uh, and that goes to the other question, right? Which is this: how do you how do you read Niebuhr? Do you do do you kind of pull out kind of texts and say, well, this is the real Niebuhr, um, or do you look at the sort of the complexity and the sweep of his is his thought? And as as is probably apparent from from my book, you know. I think you got to look at the, the the overall sweep of his thought, mm-hmm. because one of the earliest biographies of Niebuhr, riffing on his Serenity Prayer, was called "The Courage to Change," um, and the whole point of Niebuhr's biography is that he was willing to change in you know in light of changing circumstances, mm-hmm. you know whether it's going from you know his kind of more or less pacifist position in the immediate aftermath of World War One uh, to his Marxist position uh, by the time he's writing kind of like Moral Man and Immoral Society to his rejection of Marxism and socialism. And then you get the nature and destiny of man where he's basically buying into, you know, a, a fundamentally kind of form of New Deal liberalism uh, to, you know, the point at which he's, you know, actively militating for involvement in World War II. Um, but even there, he changes from we need to be actively involved uh, from, you know, well, supporting kind of guns and butter diplomacy uh, to his world, his his Cold War stance, um, to his, you know, his anti-Vietnam War stance, to his, you know, the last things that he's writing at the end of his life are criticisms of, of Richard Nixon. You know, and you can see a, a through line, you know, in all of that, but within that, within, with, but kind of, kind of on the sort of trajectory of that through line, you see a lot of variation on the theme. And you can't just say, well, only one text represents Niebuhr to the exclusion of all the others. You have to understand him with all of the all of the you know all of the 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 complexity and the apparent contradictions included and you got to take the whole package um and if you take the whole package what you realize is that niebuhr can't be boiled down to one simple ideological uh, um or moral position he's he's a very 
complex figure. Let me well, uh, play some devil's advocate real quick. Um, is there a way to boil Niebuhr down to his kind of dialectic of human nature? We have another uh, friend of the pod who is trying to pursue this angle of Niebuhr as a Hebraic prophetic um, thinker. Now, I probably all of the, and some, uh, you know, Gilkey, there, there's a lot of people who try to frame him as Augustinian primarily. So I don't know, is, is there harm in kind of tackling like one of these as kind of a touchstone of Niebuhr that you do see kind of throughout his career? Maybe, and maybe there are several touchstones, but I'm, it's more of a question about how to read Niebuhr because it's hard to keep all of Niebuhr in your head at once, right? And it's well, it's it's somewhat easier to come in with, okay, this is his thoughts on human nature, and then kind of, you know, apply that out to his, his uh, to his broader catalog. It, if I could just throw something in there real quick to respond to you, Cliff. You know, the thing I was thinking of that I, I was going to mention is, you know, my my. I guess you could say my dirty pleasure at Moody Bible Institute was I would read uh, or read or listen to Chris Hedges. Um, it just, and he was kind of person that really got me started towards Niebuhr, but obviously wouldn't have been considered very orthodox at Moody Bible Institute. Um, but one of the things that I, I immediately think of, like when you're talking about this, this 2001, uh, the idea of the, even the idea of like a war on terror, right? I think of Niebuhr and I think of like, he is committed to this dialectic right in in every situation and you know i think of hedges and how you know he got he got fired uh, from the times magazine for basically speaking out against the the war and i i really i mean for me it seems like just in in looking at that broad swath it seems like the dialectic would be a, a, a key response in any of those if you're going to follow that Niebuhr. there's always out. and on the other hand with Niebuhr, mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah sorry i i just i, I felt like they connected to what you were saying yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I do think that when I talk about the through line, uh, what I'm talking about is basically his his conception of human nature, right? His understanding of, you know, of the way in which we are limited by our, uh, you know, by our, you know, freedom and finitude, right? The way in which that becomes the sort of kind of uh, ground out of which sin and self-interest grow, right? And the way in which, you know, institutions are innately incapable uh, of of achieving morality and and therefore you know we have to rely on on justice you know as a kind of a lesser uh as as a lesser aspiration um because we cannot achieve a society that is grounded fully in self-giving love uh, and there are certainly critiques that can be offered uh, of that thought. And I, in particular, think that, you know, I think that Niebuhr's love justice conception needs to be supplemented. Um, I do think that Tillich, uh, when he comes in with, you know, in love, power and justice and offers a different account of the interrelatedness of these concepts, I think that's an important qualifier uh, for Niebuhr. And I also like Corn Cornel West's line about how, you know, Justice is what love looks like in public is, you know, another good kind of corrective to that. But that's what I think of as sort of the through line. Mm -hmm. And then when you kind of begin with that, and then you say, well, what does that mean in a particular set of circumstances? Then you can see why he would be considered 
you know, on the left at a certain point, on a, on the right on another point, you know, kind of depending on on your perspective on things. He was always, in my estimation, a man of the left, right? I don't think I think he would be have been horrified to see his thought picked up and used by people on the political right. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite Niebuhr stories is the story um, about his despondency over the election of of uh, Eisenhower. Right, Eisenhower. These days, we'd like we we yeah. love a president like Eisenhower now. Oh, yeah. Right. And, you know, it's like, oh, thank God, we got finally got a liberal back in office. Um, <laughs> but but at the time, he was considered as completely off the charts right wing for from from Reinhold's perspective and so he um so so he was very despondent and uh, it was correspondence between Ursula Niebuhr and Louis Brandeis in which Brandeis <clears throat> tried to comfort Ursula by um by basically saying that <clears throat> basically agreeing that you know these the you know the Eisenhower administration was was off the charts and that you know he says you know that, that I think how, how did he put it that uh, self righteousness and stupidity together are devil's bread <laughs> um, and then he and I'm not going to attempt the German but then he says he says uh, something like against the stupid the gods themselves struggle in vain um, <clears throat> and uh, and so you know and that was sort of kind of there that's good. That was sort of their attitude toward Eisenhower, right? Um, who again looks pretty milk toast and moderate by modern standards. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying um, to imagine a, a Republican uh, tackling a project as big as the highway system. You know? Like yes, that. exactly. Exactly. These we can't even get get bridges repaired these days. <laughs> no big walls. Um, um, yeah. Now, but I, I kind of wanted to bring up. Was actually, that was actually my question a couple episodes ago to one of our guests was, can you always, is Niebuhr kind of like a left thinker? And can you always see him that way? Mm -hmm. But I haven't got to my first question yet. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I go ahead? This? Yeah, let's unless get back to the book. Unless you want to move into this. I was wanting to get back to the book. So Okay, okay. Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought I had to fight back for this. No, no, okay. you got it. You got it. Um, it's gonna be completely off topic. We're, talk we're talking about, but in conversation between this continuity versus digression between these two brothers, I I found something really interesting. That I, I don't know if you picked up on, or maybe I'm just making this or pulling out of my butt. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, when after the war, Reinhold joined the delegation that went to Europe, um, and you mentioned a few things that Niebuhr saw, and I, I thought these two things were quite interesting that he noticed the horrors that the Germans faced at the hands of the French after they had been occupied. And then he saw that the effects of the dr draconian reparations. And I was thinking, wow, if someone just read this and, and they would think a few things, A, how could Reinhold feel badly for the Germans mm -hmm. after the war? And then did he actually just foresee the social and political complications that would result from the reparations, i.e. Nazism and stuff like that? Um, but then again, I began to think, you know, after the war, Niebuhr, Reinhold said that I'm done with the war business. But then he goes back into, you know, giving some theories for, I guess, a just war or something like that. But Richard, his brother, 
is completely remained ambivalent to interactions and warfare and these things. But they they both went to Europe together on holiday and went to Russia and all these places. So they both had similar experiences in observing the European theater after post-war, but they've remained distinct uh, afterwards. So I, I was wondering, maybe you can comment on that. Why? Well, I think they were probably closest to one another in the immediate aftermath of that trip. Yeah. Right. It was, they, they, you know, they saw the same things. They, you know, they both came back to the United States um, and, you know, declared themselves pacifists. Um, they both joined the socialist party. Um and that remained the case for most of the next decade and change. Uh, and it really was the, but this is really where their sort of their respective theologies once again present different pictures uh, of, of how to proceed, right? And this is probably clearest, you know, where the divergence really begins is, is over the Manchurian crisis, right? And this is where the kind of the classic, one of the only places where the two of them publicly disagreed with one another, right, was uh, was in that exchange in the Christian century, um, where they, you know, the question of, you know, um, the grace of doing nothing, you know, must we do nothing? Um, and this question of, well, what actually is the Christian role in the context of these sort of global conflicts? Mm -hmm. And the big distinction here, if I can, if I can really get theological, uh, at least the way that Reinhold frames it, is that for Reinhold, God is beyond history, and therefore, human beings in the historical context are always seeking to to understand, you know, kind of how to approximate something that is fundamentally beyond our capacity to achieve. For Richard, God is, is intimately involved in the human situation, and therefore human life is about trying to discern and detect where God is leading and how God is, um, is working within our lives and in the lives of the societies and the groups that we belong to. So for Richard, he looks at that and he's saying, we need to always be attentive to where God is acting. Whereas Reinhold says, well, God's action in the world is undetectable, right? That God is always something transcendent. Yeah. Right. And so therefore, the question becomes one not of what is God doing, but what is the human responsibility mm. in the context of flawed and finite institutions? And, and in that light, he says, well, ultimately, we can't project our responsibility onto God. We need to take it onto ourselves. And that means we need to act in the midst of ambiguity. Mm. Right. Whereas Whereas Richard was willing to say, well, ambiguity remains ambiguous, right? And so therefore, without a clear guideline for how we should act, without a real kind of, you know, God intervening or God, you know, uh, making God's self revealed to us uh, in a particular setting, we have to be willing to wait mm -hmm. until, until God becomes apparent. And so I think that when you kind of begin with that, distinction in terms of how they view God and God's action in the world, you begin to see why their theologies begin to diverge in the mid-1930s. 
But even there, it come, they come back together again to support World War II, hmm. but in very different ways, right? Because you know, on the because because Richard is always ambivalent uh, about the war and about war generally, whereas Reinhold is is much more enthusiastic. Uh, and it, again, there may be a biographical key here too, because for Reinhold being married to a British woman. He saw and knew much more directly. He was also there giving the Gifford lectures when the, you know, the Germans were bombing um, that he knew firsthand and through his family connections, just how much suffering was going on in Europe as a result of the war. Uh, and so that might have had a much greater impact on his willingness to to support more direct action, whereas Richard was like always dubious about the idea that you could you could justify a war, even a war that was ultimately deemed necessary. Really glad you brought that up because I have in big bold letters on my notes uh, talk about this exact point because I as soon as I read that quote in your book, uh, I, I texted it to the group chat that we have, and and Cliff's like, yeah, we definitely gotta we gotta definitely gotta circle around to this one because it was a. Uh, now that you flesh it out more, I, I think it, I understand what you're talking about more. It sounded more when I read it in the book initially. It sounded more like you were saying that Niebuhr's kind of like, eh, you know, God doesn't act in history. He's kind of a uh, almost like agnostic to God acting in history. But you're saying it's it's more like he doesn't. We can't determine what that action is. It's uh -huh. it's beyond our comprehension, and that uh -huh. that that makes a lot more sense. So. Uh, you talk about like the point where there's kind of a visible public break. But obviously, it almost seemed like they were destined to get to this break at some point. So I'm wondering if, the, like, what would you say is the biggest fork in the road in their personal lives and their personal journeys, kind of the point of no return where that really sealed the deal in these different journeys? If they were to look back and say, yep, that was the moment we became entrenched in our own you know, destiny, our, our own careers, as it were. Because reading this, I can't help but see that Richard's time at Eden had a profound impact on the direction of his career and decidedly placed him within some very clear parameters of orthodoxy and stability um, that he would never leave. And Reinhold, you know, kind of was given free reign and able to be very creative in his own context. So I, I, I'm wondering if you agree with that. Is, is this kind of a, a, a big breaking point when Richard goes to Eden? Yeah, I would actually, I'd actually place it somewhat differently. And I think that the way, although I, I think that there's a lot to that, and it goes back to the earlier conversation too, about their both being kind of reflective of neo-orthodoxy, right? Because I think that the the sort of the line of demarcation really takes place when Reinhold needs to drop out of Yale in order to go back mm. to to serve a church, mm -hmm. right? So whereas Richard goes on and completes his PhD at Yale, mm. and and I think the reason why that line of demarcation is important is because for 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 Reinhold he he because they both spoke German as their as as a first language right so they were both on the cutting edge of the theology coming out of Germany at the time uh because they could just read it in the original language they didn't have to wait for translations um 
Uh, and so what happens with both of them is that they become very immersed in um, in the work of Tillich, in particular Tillich for, for Richard and Bart for Richard. Whereas for Reinhold, I think it is, you know, he, he leaves that academic setting and doesn't immerse himself as much in the sort of kind of the theological trends coming out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, doesn't immerse himself as deeply in this whole kind of the, the Bardian idea of, you know, of kind of God as holy other or the Tillichian conception of the God beyond God, right? And the way in which those things sort of kind of become, you know, deeply ingrained in Richard's thought. In fact, I mean, one way of reading Richard, I think, is that Richard really is the great interpreter of German neo-Orthodoxy in the American context. Um, whereas Reinhold, I would, I would argue, never really stops being a 19th century liberal. Um, he's still grounded in a kind of a fundamentally Harnackian conception uh, of, uh, of, of theology. And because he finds himself in the church and in a pastoral context, you know, he never really dives as deeply into that work as Richard does. And so Richard's work becomes more subtle. Um, well, I mean, again, we've as we established from 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 birth, it seems as though Richard was more subtle. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you know, sort of he embraces that subtlety in the way in which you know you read through his various writings from the 30s and 40s, and he's really kind of grappling with these deep theological questions. Whereas Niebuhr, whereas Reinhold, always wants to run to you know the application. He wants to run to. You know, what's the, this is where the pragmatism comes in. Um, you know, he always wants to run to, you know, what's the cash value of this right. idea? Right. right. And I, I almost wonder if just by virtue of Richard doing the PhD, when, if either of the two probably needed to do a PhD, it might've been Reinhold because like in a, in a traditional sense, because it would have forced him to, you know, almost have a different personality because he all of a sudden has to be more subtle. He all of a sudden has to be more, um, he can't synthesize the way that he does in Nature and Destiny if he's writing a PhD. Um, They really like getting the PhD and not, like I look back on some of my papers before I did the PhD and in some ways I think they're better because they're kind of more creative and they're not as tied down to like, you know, having to back up everything and like there's more of a creative realm there it seems like. And I almost wonder if just that academic difference can inflame or or make their different personalities even more different. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there's a way in which, right, Reinhold is always working within a preacher's kind of kind of um, ethos, right? You know, and kind of, you can write a sermon, right? And you can see how nature and destiny could almost just be a sermon, right? Well, there's this option over here, and there's this option over here. But the truth is this is this is this Aufheben, right? Is this is this synthesis of the two ideas, and that is you know I you know that is very much sort of a uh, that is very much the the preacher's modality, right? Whereas 
Whereas you can't do that with Richard. And when I teach like radical monotheism in Western culture, um, you know, in, in some of my classes, it's really very interesting for me to, you know, kind of watch the students struggle with some of the subtleties and complexities that Richard is, is dealing with there and understanding um, that, well, what he's really saying here is that, is that, you know, even, even, Christianity can be a form of idolatry if it is not grounded in, you know, a radical conception of monotheism in which all of our symbols are relativized, right? Mm-hmm. You know, whereas, again, that's, that's, Richard, Reinhold would probably agree with that, uh, almost certainly. But for him, it's almost beside the point, because it's the symbols mm-hmm. that give us the resources for understanding and conceiving what our responsibility in the world mm-hmm. is. Do you think um, Richard would agree with Reinhold that all theology begins with Amos then? I think they would have a very good conversation about that idea. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be very interesting. I, th- if, if I were guessing, I would think that Richard's response would be, Actually, all theology begins with the declaration from the burning bush. Interesting. Right? I am, I am that relation. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Sorry, I, just that. Yeah. No, I, I had the same question, Aaron. <laughs> okay, because I've been, I, you know, cause I, I'm trying to get stuff for my PhD ready, and I've been listening to a lot of David Bentley Hart on monotheism, and like, I, uh, yeah, just the, the question just popped up. No, I, I love reading. I love reading David Bentley Hart. I mean, he's. <laughs> I don't know that I always agree with him, but he, yeah. he always he always entertains me. He's very entertaining writer, <laughs> especially when he's like crapping on somebody. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think um, so. Kind of, I got to be honest. Probably the most that I got out of this is because is is stuff on Richard because I honestly just haven't I haven't read much at all on Richard, uh, and uh, I I thought. Um, the the stuff on the the social sources of denominationalism was interesting and it made me wonder what their conversations were like at thanksgiving um when this came out because it's so it's seemingly so idealistic um it it's admirable um but i don't see richard setting up kind of real life practical approaches to resolve these huge problems that he's addressing. Um, it seemed like he was very idealistic about ecumenism, which is great. You know, ecumenism has, has in many ways been a, a really good thing. Um, very idealistic about identity, um, talking about how to quote revolt in the church, like having a revolt in the church against this dependency on anthropocentric nationalist and capitalist society and how he dealt with kind of the black issue the black white problem in denominationalism um and functional segregation is kind of what he was talking about how really at the the end of the day it's kind of a segregation between these two it's a very complicated issue and it seems like the way that you're characterizing it is we just got the white folks just need to repent like is it just seems like like reinhold would have taken issue with he probably would have loved the way that he's setting up the problem, but I wonder if he would have loved kind of his conclusions on the matter. Hmm. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think reading the two of them 
in conjunction with one another is really very useful because so one way of reading, well, I think the right way of reading the social sources of denominationalism is that this is this is is Richard really just trying to do for American Christianity what Ernst Trelsch did um and uh you know for kind of the the larger history of Christianity and understanding what the church sect um distinction means in the context of American history, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so for him, you know, this is the original sin of American Christianity is denominationalism, right? This idea that we, you know, that we sort of show up here on this on this continent and immediately begin infighting with one another over over the meaning of Christian faith. And as you note, you know, one of the one of the key points of of argument is over this question of of the role of African Americans in the church. And when you when you kind of take all of this sort of together, you know, you do wind up with sort of a critique of American Christianity, which doesn't necessarily offer much by way of solution. And what Reinhold offers then when you then turn to moral man and immoral society, and particularly the chapters where he's dealing specifically with the question of how do you overcome the problems of segregation, then you get a strategy. Hmm. Not only do you get a strategy, you get the strategy that was used in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's really rather remarkable to, to, to read those chapters and say, and, and, and knowing that Martin Luther King was deeply influenced by this that book in particular and and basically see the way that what Reinhold argues should be done in the south to overcome segregation is almost exactly what King does mm-hmm. you know sort of broad based campaign of nonviolence and i would argue this is not unique to me um, but and it's and I think it's somewhat controversial, but I would argue that Niebuhr was more influential to King in his nonviolence campaign than Gandhi was. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Reinhold. Yeah. Reinhold from Moral Man and Moral Society. That yeah. is in, like what? Like why? Why? Why do you think that? <laughs> well, and again, this is not, I don't think that the the idea is unique to me. And I and to be fair, I ran it by Peter Paris at one point. I wrote it in oh, yeah. um, I, I wrote it in something that I post I, I put on political theology today. Uh and Peter was polite because Peter's always polite, <laughs> but 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 had his deep doubts about that contention. <laughs> so I recognize that it may be controversial. Um, but um the um I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the book is called A Stone of Hope, uh, that sort of kind of traces the history of um of uh King and the civil rights movement. Uh and that's where the, I, I think the idea initially got presented was in that book. Uh and the more I delve into it, the more I think that that's actually the right reading of it, right? That that what happened was that because if you read, I think it's chapter nine in Moral Man in a Moral Society, where he deals with the question of of segregation in the South, what he basically says is a violent attempt 
to overcome racism and segregation in the South is doomed to failure because mm -hmm. it will simply result in a racist backlash um, and the people who will be blamed will be the African-American uh, people who are simply fighting for their rights uh, and it will set everything back mm -hmm. decades. And so therefore he advocates for a... Um, a campaign of nonviolent direct action grounded in the example of Gandhi in India. Hmm. So then King, of course, at the time that he's writing, you can read this in Stride Toward Freedom. When King is, is coming around to his strategy in, in uh, Alabama, you know, that he is reading, he's already read Reinhold and he and he and he talks about his debt to Reinhold. So we know that Reinhold was in the mix. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's and then and then it's a, at a later point that he accesses the work of Gandhi. And I think that for whereas for Niebuhr, nonviolence is strategic. And I think that King's initial embrace of nonviolence was strategic in a Niborian way. His strategy was Niborian. It was about how do you effectively deploy power? Where, where Gandhi comes back into the picture, though, is probably largely as a result of the influence of Bayard Rustin um, and the, the way in which Rustin was a much more ideologically committed pacifist who didn't take Gandhi's philosophy as merely a strategy, but as a way of life. And I think that what happened is that, that it took Rustin's influence for King to really embrace embrace Gandhian nonviolence as a way of being in the world. Whereas initially, I think he perceived it as being um, a really effective strategic uh, approach in the in the Niborian mode. Well, as you say, like Niebuhr was clearly on Martin Luther King's mind. Those who are, are around um, in Sabella and um, Dobelmeyer's documentary, the, the people who were around King are on there saying that he had almost an encyclopedic memory of uh, of Niebuhr. Um, he brings him up in Letter from Birmingham Jail. But even the way he agonizes in Letter from a Birmingham Jail over kind of the moderate Christian position, um, and he tries to sway them to action, that agonizing seems very Niebuhrian uh, in, in a way. So, I yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I'd, I'd love to, if you've uh remember who wrote that i'd love to to read more on that stone of yeah, hope no, no yeah. give, me, give me actually give me one second i can give you yeah. the david Chappelle, the other david Chappelle, the, the okay. comedian right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> different david Chappelle. And david. He, yeah, you know moonlights <laughs> moonlights is a, a neighboring scholar yeah. <laughs> um but I, let me let me I just if i can just uh sort of jump back in on the the point about letter from Birmingham jail, because I think there's another angle on this, which is that I think at the point at which he was writing that Niebuhr was very much on his mind as one of those white moderates. Mm. Because, the yeah, because, because wow. Niebuhr, if, if you read Niebuhr's writing on civil rights from that period, there's this frustrating aspect where you're like, God, you know, Ryan, <laughs> you are almost there. And, and, you know, you're just, he's, you know, so it's always the problem for Reinhold of, of this balance between, between the desire 
to press forward for needed social change and the recognition of our own limitations, right? And so there are times when that recognition of our own limitations prevents him from going farther than he otherwise might. Right. So, so in a lot of times in the middle of the civil rights movement, his first instinct is to pull back, to make a case for the other side, um, to say, well, let's go a little bit slower. Um, and that's exactly what, what, what King is responding to in letter from Birmingham jail is the whole go a little bit slower or on your side, but slow down a bit attitude. Gosh, Scott, I've always had that suspicion, but I've never wanted to face it <laughs> but that does i mean that checks out man that we, checks out we, we always we always blame it we always say you know it's his, his post-stroke years you know whatever we, find <laughs> yeah, we, we don't like we that's just say, the you common know, refrain on this on this show yeah you know we blame it, it on the post stroke. He, he says some stuff there at the end of his life that was a little <laughs> i don't know I, if i disagree with a lot of things it's where i find them is typically in the no we we need to own that we need to own that time but i do yeah that's that's hard to that's hard to swallow i I had a question, um, and this has to do. Could you jump jump back to the book uh, of the Niebuhr brothers? I was I was standing in my kitchen listening to the book. Uh, Alexa reads to me, you know, cooking mm-hmm. dinner, and we've heard it said a few times on here that um, Reinhold had a tendency to borrow without citing, just kind of like take people's information and just like incorporate it, right? Just like it was just in the synthesis, and so he just got put in there. And I I really was struck by. Uh, something you wrote you wrote from richard's point of view the purity of motive is the only consideration that christians need to bring to their actions on the contrary since all christian motivations are mixed and everything is to some degree touched by sin we cannot wait to act until we are sure of our own purity of motive um and there was something about that line that was like man that it sounds it sounds a lot like reinhold and i'm wondering who do you think influenced who more? Because I, I I sort of wonder, just having read through kind of more of, at least in your book, it's where I've mostly encountered uh, Richard. I was struck by how he had a, had a tendency to kind of almost synthesize, it seemed like, or, or make it really clear some of the fundamental underlying principles that Reinhold was actually seemed to be operating by. Um, and especially for some reason, that one really struck me. And so I was just curious, who, who do you think really, I mean, I know it's not possible to synthesize out who perfectly influenced who, but it seems like maybe Reinhold might have drawn upon his work a little bit, um, or a lot of it. Um, what, what's your take on that? No, I think there's a lot to that. Um, so I guess suppose one way of reading this, and I'm just sort of kind of thinking this through as I'm speaking. So I, I may I may want to revise this later, but I think one way of of thinking about this is that what Richard was doing on sort of that deep and subtle theological level provided a lot of the foundation for the more out there and public and sort of kind of risk-taking stuff that Reinhold was doing. So there's a way, like I said earlier, I think that for a lot of these things, they would have agreed with one another. You know, in private, they probably would have said, oh, yeah, no, I, I agree with your conception of God, or, you know, um, I think you're right on on this topic. You know, but they didn't really, except for that one exchange in the, in the century, they didn't really engage publicly with one another. But I think that it was a, it's widely acknowledged within the Niebuhr family that Richard was the better theologian, mm-hmm. and that even Reinhold 
knew and acknowledged that. And so I think that the idea that Reinhold would sort of kind of take ideas from Richard and then sort of kind of put them in a more, in a bolder way uh, would, you know, is absolutely, that's a, that's a very credible argument for my it's kind of a good good cop bad cop kind of thing yeah well i you know it just seemed like there were some of those fundamental ideas that i was like oh i i've heard this before but it's when i was reading reinhold and so i was just trying to figure out which way the direct which direction you thought that went yeah well again i think it probably went both ways but i think that you know on the on the deeper level i think that that richard probably influenced reinhold in ways that are not that are not always entirely apparent um and i think that I, you know, I mean, Rick, Reinhold was always the older brother, right? So in a certain sense, he was always the one kind of, you know, out there, you know, in front as older brothers often are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so in that sense, he was taking thoughts and ideas that they shared in common with one another and sort of putting them in a more, uh, in a more forthright way. Whereas Richard was kind of coming back and saying kind of in another sense, well, okay, but let me, let me nuance that a bit. Right. Mm-hmm. So it may, it may not even be a question of of one influence in the other. It's that they shared a common set of ideas and they used those ideas in different ways. So I got a question that kind of goes along with that. Um, I've always run this through in my head. Cause I, I've taught, um, Christ and culture to undergrads, uh, Richard's Christ and culture. It's it's a good launching point for discussions uh, about ecclesiology and and uh, and how we engage with with politics. Um, how would Richard classify Niebuhr? And obviously, obviously, Reinhold has doesn't have a whole lot of an ecclesiology that's spelled out, right? Um, but the way that he engages in culture, I'm wondering if you have a take on that. My suspicion is maybe like a, a Christ and culture and paradox type of uh, category. Or how how would what would you say? How would how would Richard classify Reinhold? So you know you know the John Howard Yoder critique of that, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, you know the idea that well everybody thinks of themselves as a Christ transforming culture person, right? Right. right. Nobody, nobody, nobody. You know, but I think that there's a, there's a I think that if if I'm being honest, I think that Reinhold does fit more in the Christ and culture and paradox model, um, and I think that. I think that Richard probably would have had Reinhold in mind as as an exemplar figure in that. Uh, of course, for him, the exemplar figure for Christ and culture and paradox is Luther, right? So you know, so so and Luther is. This is where we get into some of the denom- denominational weirdness of the evangelical and reformed church, right? Because you know, sort of, if you kind of assume that the you know, the Lutheran model is always that these two things are in tension with one another. And the Calvinist model is always that, you know, there's some, there's some, some uh, sanctification taking place, right? You know, but because, because both of them had sort of their Lutheran and their Calvinist sort of feet, you know, a foot in each of those ponds, there's a way in which they were always recognize and I'll speak to I'll speak about Reinhold in particular you know always recognizing the inescapable paradoxes but also saying that we need to be 
trying to find ways to, you know, again, approximate justice under, uh, under uh, using justice to approximate love under fallen conditions. Interesting. Kind of going off that, my, I, I did have a question about this. Well, I'll make one comment before I launch into the question. I wonder if like this seemingly competitive nature between Reinhold and Richard is, is why uh, you know, Reinhold being the more boisterous and loud voice, getting his ideas out. Maybe Richard actually felt the need to complete his PhD, to have something a one over on his brother, potentially, I'm not sure. But but going on that, um, I wonder in in reading that second chapter again about Richard's, I guess, critique or analysis of the way denominations arise through social needs. They're more responsive to social crisis and needs than anything. I wonder if Richard would even say that despite the depth of his brother's social thinking, he remains like a sentimentally liberal and a bit naive um, about, again, the nuances of you know theological discourse and such. Would, would you care to comment on that a bit more? Um, well, I would hesitate to say that that Richard would have seen his brother as naive. Um, sure. I think he might have said, that that his brother has a way of expressing himself that is more more risk taking, um, and you know, and again, it's sort of, sort of a more, you know, again, it's less complex, it's less nuanced. Um, the other thing I would say is that as far as if you were sort of looking in 1935 and asking kind of along the lines of which which of these two brothers is a more successful theologian right the answer would have been richard right because he had the phd he was working in universities he was at eden uh he was at, at um you know um elmhurst um you know he you know he eventually wound up back at yale you know that you look at that that's sort of kind of the the traditional march of academic success, right? Whereas Reinhold, for most of that same period of time, um, was 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 pastoring a church, um, and you know, no no shade on pastoring a church. I pastor a church too, but um, we all do, yeah. Yes, <laughs> um, but but that was that would not be what you would when you're sort of looking at what makes for a successful theologian. You're looking at universities and seminaries, right? And the idea that a person would be a theologian in the church was a more was a, a less a less common model, even though, you know, again, not at all uncommon. Um, and so there was a way in which you might have said, well, Richard was clearly like knocking all of the targets down, whereas Reinhold had kind of been left behind. So the fact that then that now we look at it and we're like, well. Reinhold is the more is the more influential theologian of the two of them, and they might have been a surprise in 1935. Mm -hmm. um, you know, precisely because Richard had all of those sort of credentials and credits to his name. But I think that what makes Reinhold more influential is precisely that the boldness of his willingness to sort of kind of wade into public discourse, right, and to kind of leave nuance to the side, right? Not ignore it entirely, but to leave it to the side and simply say, here is where we have to, here's where we have to take a stand on a public 
public issue, whether it's civil rights, World War II, the Cold War, and, you know, and there's a way in which, and I'm sympathetic to Richard on this, you know, I always want to be like, oh, let's moderate, let's, let's, let's complexify this. And this is sort of just my academic, this is sort of my academic habit as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very difficult to be out front on controversial and difficult issues because as a, as a theologian, I'm trained and by instinct, I want to keep thinking about these things and go deeper and, you know, explore the, 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 the various dimensionalities of it. When sometimes what the moment requires is exactly what Reinhold was always willing to do, which is just to say, again, in kind of almost Lutheran mode, you know, here's where I stand. Well, Scott, we have, um, I'll ask this question, then we have time for one more question a piece, I think. Um, so reading through this book, you obviously can't help but notice the really cool illustrations going on in this. What's the story behind this? So this book was the was a contribution to the Armchair Theologians series, um, and which is a great series. Um, and um, one of the one of the key elements of the series was that this uh, the illustrator Ron Hill did all of the illustrations for all of the volumes. Cool. Uh, and I loved working with him. I mean, he sent me these sketches and I immediately fell in love with the with the illustrations that, you know, again, he would base the illustrations on on what I wrote in my manuscript. Um, and it just I, he'd send them to me and I'd be like, these are great. These are fantastic. Wow. And so they've got them for Bart Bonhoeffer, Aquinas, Augustine, liberation theology. There's a volume on heretics. Um, nice. And, and so <laughs> so so it, the funny thing is this. I think that this book really does make a contribution to the scholarship because it's one of the few places where you're going to find the brothers put into conversation with yeah, them. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I think the illustrations in the, in the book are great, but I, but every so often you encounter someone who doesn't think that it's a serious book because it's got right. cartoons in it. And I'm like, well, you know, read it. You know? Right, <laughs> right. It's doing something. Now, I could have, I, and I, I sometimes think I need to go back and do another version of this book, or somebody does go back and do another version of this book, which is much more of sort of the traditional um, academic monograph, so that you can kind of put the two into conversation with one another without, like, you know, kind of getting shade thrown at it uh, because of the illustrations. But I love the illustrations, and yeah, I the illustrations that. are awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, and, yeah. and I, I I want to stress this is a serious contribution mm-hmm. to Niebuhr studies to both uh, and does them both a, g- a great justice. And their relationship, I mean, you don't get a whole lot like this at all, you know, uh, as a comparative type of thing. So yeah, don't let the don't let the pictures think that this uh, well, make people think that this is elementary or something. This is good stuff. So my my final question for you, uh, you know, this is just kind of a fun one I I thought of. Um, you know, let's just say hypothetically you're you're exiled to a little island called Patmos, right? And um, you have to choose, right, Richard or Reinhold. I knew uh, you're going to ask this. Who who, who are do you going to take? Who who do you take? Do you, do you take Richard or, or Reinhold? Who who are you gonna who are you gonna read out out on the island? This is like the desert island jukebox question yeah. <laughs> that, that comes up on sound opinions. Yeah. Um, so I think I would, 
I would have to go with Richard. Mm. Wow. I told you, Cliff. I know. <laughs> that surprised me. Okay. I know. I, I mean, I love, again, I love them both. Um, but I think that from the perspective of, and having taught both of them at various times, I just feel like Richard is a much deeper well to plumb. And if you've got to, if you're stuck on, on a rocky island in the uh, GNC for the foreseeable future, and you've only got the corpus of one of these two, you know, I feel like, you know, you're going to, you're going to reap a lot more rewards by spending, you know, the next decade or so reading Richard than you will reading Reinhold. That's interesting because, yeah, so Zach started reading this before I did. He was like, oh, man, he's 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 really into Richard. I, I think he really likes Richard more. And I don't know why that's an issue. Like, why? Like, you don't have to choose between the no, two. I, and I, I, and I was I, I was <laughs> like, I went back and actually before I read this, I went back and listened to your interview with Trip Fuller again. And I was like, no, dude, he's totally on the Reinhold train. So we had a little <laughs> Reinhold versus Richard back and forth. But that's interesting. I love them both. And, and I will happily, if I ever get a chance to teach a course like just on the Nibors, they're both going to feature. In the spirit of Reinhold and his like just propensity to action, I just want to see if you'll comment on this. Obviously, Reinhold's used to kind of give an analysis on like American culture and society after 9 11. We just had CPAC. <laughs> Mm. this past weekend and like nobody attended obviously but uh what would you be like your maybe richard or reinhold critique of what's going on in american politics at this moment well it's funny you should ask that because the book that i'm currently writing uh is on and actually it's it's a it's actually three volumes um, and the first volume that I'm writing right now is called Christianity and Identity. Um, and what I'm doing in that book is trying to use the resources of, of what I usually refer to my disciplinary uh, approach as public theology. And of course, Reinhold was sort of kind of designated uh, by Martin Marty as the first public theologian, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so what I'm trying to do in that book is to analyze precisely this question of, in this political moment that we're in, what do these sort of competing conceptions of identity in public life do to our understanding of uh, of the of the divisions in, 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 among the body politic, right? Mm -hmm. And then sort of the and this is where actually I sneak Moltmann in. Um, and then the question is, well, so what is the what does Christianity have have anything to offer? Uh, in this moment in order to 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 give a response. And there what I want to do is I want to say, well, yes, I think that what we have to say is that Christian identity, first of all, is grounded in the cross uh, of Jesus Christ, right? And that 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 is this is the touchstone of what what our identity as Christians ought to be. But what that means is that we need to always be, in solidarity with the outcast, with the marginalized, with those who are those who are oppressed. And that means we have to stand with those people whose identity is being negated by forms of, you know, 
do we want to call it neo-fascism? I certainly think you can make a case for it. Um, but in any event, these sort of right-wing identitarian politics that exist for no purpose except to keep those in power in power and to keep those on the margins at the margins. And this is nowhere clearer than in the way that Ron DeSantis is attempting to govern Florida oh in this gosh. moment, um, you know, in the various ways that he's attempting to marginalize critical voices to ensure that, you know, you can't talk about LGBT issues issues, to ensure that you can't talk about race, critical race theory. And, you know, the answer to that, the moral answer to that for from a Christian perspective has to be to engage on behalf of, of those people who are being, being repressed in that context in order to, uh, in, in order to, to allow their voices to rise to, uh, to the center of, of political discourse. You know, it's crazy. Some moderates are treating DeSantis like he's Trump light, yeah. but he is he's scarier than Trump. Yeah. More effective. Yeah. He's well, more. Yeah. That's that's what's scary is he's more effective. You know, well, what he... I've said many times, you know, the problem is that Trump is an incompetent fascist. Right. right. And, you know, and so if you take someone who is who is ideologically identical to Trump, just as unscrupulous as Trump, but has a brain in his head, he's 10 times as dangerous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a good description of DeSantis. If I can just add one more thing to kind of my kind of CPAC response. Um, I think that when you go back and listen to Donald Trump's speech, what you see is this appeal to revenge this appeal to revanchism right mm -hmm. this idea that i'm here to be your retribution yeah right and and again i mean when i when i go back and i look at the way that reinhold was writing about nixon in the last couple of years of his life right and nixon's nixon's kind of you know kind of the kind of the the model of the kind mm -hmm. of you know petty wannabe dictator mm -hmm. um that I can't help but think that that Reinhold would be infinitely more appalled at the uh, at... my dog is 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 having a dream over here. If you can, <laughs> that's funny. That's okay. But I think Reinhold would be infinitely more appalled by by what he is hearing out of today's GOP than he would have been by Nixon, and certainly than he would have been by. Eisenhower. Yeah, the the uh, the Graham Nixon doctrine he critiques in King's Chaplain and King's Court mm -hmm. is exponentially uh, beyond that now. This mm -hmm. um, this Faustian deal between right wing Christianity and right wing fascists. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's 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 scary times. And th this is, by the way, uh, something that comes up a lot on this show because. We're reading through Beyond Tragedy and the things that he's seeing crop up in Europe. I mean, he brings up Hitler and this is, you know, a couple of years before Germany um, invades Poland. And it's just it's really crazy how many of the things that he's picking up on in his time we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah. OK, my last question is kind of a series of quick blast questions for you, Scott. Um, so, Scott, since this is a book about brothers, first off, do you have a brother? I have two brothers. They're younger. Oh, nice. Brothers. So you can relate. Twins. I do, too. Yeah, they're, they're twins. twins. Nice. Yeah. 
No, that's not necessarily for the question, but it's just curious. But oh, I have a brother and brothers can fight, right? And brothers can be annoying when they're little. And so we have these two little brothers at church, by the way, and they're kids like five and seven, and they are just spawns of Satan, man. But they remind me of me and my brother when we were little. They just feed off each other, you know, it is. Oh, my gosh. But I, I love you. them. I totally love them. But it's tough. Yeah. So my question, if you had to take a long family vacation in a hot car, so you're starting in Chicago, go all the way down to Disney World, no air conditioner, just a miserable trip. Which brothers would you rather be stuck with? And there's a series of these. Just pick which one. Niebuhr brothers or the Wesley brothers? Niebuhr brothers. Amen, brother. Uh, the the Wilson brothers, Owen and Luke Wilson, or the Marx brothers? The Marx brothers. Nice. The Baldwin brothers or the Jonas brothers? <laughs> Is there a third option? <laughs> I'll go with the Jonas brothers because at least you get some decent music, which, That's which right. I missed out on with Charles Wesley. So They, they can <laughs> entertain you. The Kennedy brothers... Or the Property Brothers. Do you know the Property Brothers? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like the Kennedy Brothers would get me into a lot more trouble. So I'll go with the Property Brothers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the James Brothers, so William and, and Henry, or the Wright Brothers? Uh, the James Brothers. Absolutely. 100%. That would be an interesting time. The Brothers Karmazov or the Brothers Grimm? The brothers grim because I, the brothers Karamazov, I could wind up dead. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one uh, just because of where you live. But this is the last one. The Blues Brothers or the Manning Brothers? <laughs> the Blues Brothers, definitely. <laughs> boy. All right. Okay. Um, so out of all those I just mentioned, which one would you rather take the trip with? the thing is so if i said the blues brothers which would definitely be my preferred option again by the end of it i would probably wind up you know arrested <laughs> you're on a mission Gaza. from god yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice well thank you scott uh for coming on with us it's been a great conversation and when you finish that book on identity i guess it's three different parts i would love to discuss the interplay of niebuhr and Moltmann. That's always fascinating. I knew I knew that about Moltmann. So I've always been looking for this connection with his work and I have some suspicions about it. Um, but I, we'd love to have you back on uh, wh whenever you finish that. And uh, and yeah, so thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, happy yeah, to be here. Thanks. thanks so much for having me. Good. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. Scott Haith. You can check out his book and you can check out the whole series, really. We found this book on online on Amazon, um, but it's Westminster John Knox Press does a whole series. But this is particularly a great book, a great read. And it might be a nice little introduction for when we get Helen Gaston on, who's doing some new work on the Niebuhr brothers. Um, and I, I want to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Make sure you all like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.